0: Well, welcome back. This is Bill Marshall, author of Pushing Against the Tide, My Stage 4 Metastatic Cancer, Body Consciousness, and Its Underlying Cause. Anyways, I'm going to be continuing here with Chapter 4, titled Post-Trauma. By the time we moved to Groton, Connecticut in 1955, I noticed a subtle change in me. I noticed the level of introversion that was not there before. I would have to know someone well before I opened up. It was only much later in life that I attributed it to introversion, another attachment to my genuine identity. It became much worse the older I got, to the point that I felt hermit-like and comfortable with it. It was easier being Catholic before I entered the hollowed walls of puberty. I suppose, if Freud was right, a few of the boys might have had a struggle with keeping sin at bay. You know, the Oedipus thing and sex in general. Really, what sins do little boys and girls commit? I had to make some up in order to go to confession. Forgive me, Father. I didn't honor my mother and father last Wednesday. I didn't know what coveted meant, so that left out a wide range of sins I could have truthfully confessed to. I didn't care about sin, except for one hour on Saturday during confession and one hour on Sunday during Mass. That left 166 hours of every week where being Catholic never entered my developing mind. But that was before puberty struck. I called it the dummy attack. I was smart before puberty released its testosterone into me. I think it was St. Augustine that had a bug up his ass about sex. I wish he had minded his own business because after I hit puberty, I was sinning all the time. Trouble was, the sins were all in my head which I considered harmless until I invited cancer into my life many years later. Yes, I said invited, and later learned that puberty and testosterone were not culprits. It was Paul. What I thought was dangerous and potentially traumatic was action, not thinking or imaginings. I assume you did too, and probably still do. The Catholic Church instilled in me a belief that even fantasizing about sex, which I did often, was a sin. When I learned about the mechanistic understanding of reality as an adolescent, I released my dread of impure thoughts and went full bore with them. I didn't know it, but I did continue to believe in the power of impure thoughts, but they went unrecognized and locked away. My buried trauma at age 8 and its incredibly powerful influence on everything that followed it joined with what I learned from the Catholic Church. They wove together like two vines snaking their way up a tree, eventually killing it. They defined who I thought I was. Linked together, my trauma at age 8 and the onset of puberty as an adolescent, although deeply unconscious, colored everything that followed. Being short also played a role, but that was not a trauma, but rather an influence of both my trauma and social societal needs that said, It was best to be tall if you were a male and strong. If I was stronger and faster, I might have been able to fight off or run away from Paul. I might also be more attractive to girls and women, who I told myself preferred taller boys and men. Being faster and stronger was what I became, and both became central to who I was. Thinking and imagining sacks and the need to be strong and fast continued until I had to figure what in the world my surprising creation of cancer at the age of 75 was trying to tell me. After the age of 8, much of my beliefs, which became attachments or influences of my attachments, Uh, to my genuine identity, were unconsciously driven by my trauma. Before middle school and puberty, I was a top-tier student, getting straight A's regularly. Everything changed then. I was interested only in girls and unrequited mad crushes and participated in gymnastics and basketball as a guard. I was a good. I was good at the dance, but never got too close to the net. Academics became secondary, almost an afterthought, and grades plummeted faster than a satellite making re-entry. By the end of the eighth grade, my father retired from the navy, and we moved to Norwich, Connecticut, a city of some thirty thousand souls. Norwich boasted the largest high school in the state. My freshman year I was four foot eleven and ninety five pounds even worse I didn't know a soul that in itself was traumatic I was athletic enough to try out for football but really didn't stand a chance I quit before I was cut and joined the JV cross-country team we won both state and New England championships my junior year and the state championship again my senior year while leading as our team captain. I was the first in school history to run our difficult 2.7 mile course under 14 minutes. Nevertheless, I continued having shy attacks around girls. I was popular, was voted on to the student advisory board, and voted class dancer but it made no difference in my head. I was my own worst enemy. I always wondered why the miniature actor Mickey Rooney seemingly had no difficulty attracting the most beautiful women in Hollywood. I had more than enough male friends in high school, as I fit in well with all the different cliques, athletes, gearheads, student government types, etc., I only asked out girls that, through the grapevine, I learned were interested in dating me. I chalked it all up to being shy. I could never bring myself to ask a girl out independently of my knowledge that they would say yes. I was completely unaware of my hidden trauma at eight years. I had my first drink New Year's Eve of my senior year. I swore I'd never drink again. College loomed ahead. The University of Connecticut accepted me, not because of my high scholastic standing, which was quite low, but for my ability to run a fast five-miler. At that time, in 1963, UConn housed all incoming freshmen in what we called the jungle. Me, however... They placed in a fraternity dorm. That doomed me from the get-go. I ran cross-country my freshman year, winning eight of nine races, and that was it. Drinking became a problem, and I quit running altogether after that one season. Well, it would be 12 years before I took up running again at 30. I never really thought about why I took up drinking. It seemed everyone was doing it, and and I hoped it would make my erroneously perceived shyness around women disappear. It didn't. Most of my dates in college were fix-ups, some good and some really bad. Drinking made things worse, not better. Oh, and let me not forget smoking. I added that to my toxic mix when I quit running. I was unconsciously sabotaging myself, believing all along that it was perfectly normal behavior. Looking back from my current perspective, it was decidedly not normal. This is what trauma, locked or not, will do. Vietnam loomed on the horizon plummeting grades, a bout of mononucleosis, cut classes, a burgeoning problem with alcohol, and a lack of studying, assured a forthcoming draft notice. To avoid that notice, which would result in being assigned to the infantry, I enlisted in the Army midway through my junior year. My recruiter assured me that the Army Security Agency was not in Vietnam. What a liar. It was my first placement after a year of training in cryptanalysis. I was going to be a communications spy. It's too bad I hadn't learned to be a self-spy sooner. Either drafted or enlisted and placed in the ASA were college dropouts. I earned the rank of specialist, fifth class, in less than a year and a half, based on my job performance, and despite an Article 15 due to drunken violence, I assured myself that everyone was doing it. I was just unlucky enough to get caught. From the DMZ, which is the demilitarized zone, south to the ancient city of Way, was my area of expertise in establishing enemy order of battle and location coordinates and then reporting to either Guam or Okinawa, who in turn sent up a B-52 bombing squadron to obliterate the coordinates I sent. I didn't give a second thought, to how many Vietnamese were killed in each bombing run, until many years later when I broke out in tears when the memory of it surfaced. Not all essence traumas are locked. I was responsible for the deaths of multitudes more Vietnamese infantrymen. For me, Vietnam was a 12-month tour interspersed with one week of whoring in Bangkok, Thailand. I also visited a Buddhist, a few Buddhist temples. And uh, why, I don't know. I knew nothing about Buddhism at the time. Maybe it was a harbinger of things to come. After finishing my tour in Nam, I took a month leave back home in Norwich, then two more years in Berlin, Germany not much change there i followed the same well-worn patterns that i felt were perfectly normal when my four years in the army ended i reentered yukon to finish my college degree not having any idea of what i wanted to do i majored in speech and hearing on the advice of my sister marilyn a senior at yukon by that time two buddies we rented a house within walking distance from campus It was 1970, and the women's rights movement was in full swing. Our house nestled on the edge of a small circular pond and became party central. My issues with approaching women were still locked in place, driven by forces I had no idea existed. My sister set me up with her friend, and we were married two years later. We honeymooned by way of camping along the way to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I entered the University of New Mexico for their graduate program in audiology. It would become my profession till I was forced to retire at 75 due to the limiting effect of my cancer in late September 2020. My first marriage ended. My two children, Tyler, age nine, and daughter, Kaylin, age five, were now the product of a broken marriage that I was glad to be free of despite my deep love for my children. I had yet to begin my metamorphosis, which lay awaiting me four years in my future, Although I considered myself a good and loving father, Tyler and Calen were tainted by my own hidden and unconscious trauma, as well as a generally unconscious father. Although I was a dyed-in-the-wool devotee of the mechanistic worldview, I thought I was done with my Catholic upbringing and the effect of my past influenced my present. It had to have... An effect on both of my children. Not knowing any of this at the time, I believed everything was quite normal. Divorce was no big deal, right? Tyler was my best man and Kalen was my flower bearer at my second marriage. It was 1984 and everything was good. Sarah, my new wife Sarah, my children were doing well. I was a top flight distance runner and I was still unconscious. Tyler was voted freshman class athlete at age 14 and a year later began a lifelong relationship with drugs and alcohol. Despite his substance abuse, he was the state wrestling champion in the 125-pound weight class. His alcohol use couldn't be that bad, I thought. That he was barely squeaking by academically should have been a clue. Despite his brilliant mind, he barely graduated. He skipped nearly every class and test in senior math and needed an ace on his final to graduate. He obtained a perfect score on his math final. Tyler died from a drug overdose in his mother's home one day before his 45th birthday. Having escaped the scourge of addiction, Possibly due to Tyler's example, Kaelin seemed to be doing well, whatever that was. My love for Sarah was quite lovely. She was kind, compassionate, and loved children. And despite her mirroring of uh, my own drinking, it did not appear to be affecting of anything. Our daughter Jessie came along in 1985 and David in 1987. Everything was copacetic until at age three and a half when unaccountably Jessie stopped talking to everyone except her immediate family. The professionals, of course, went immediately to trauma as the cause of her silence, which insulted and wounded my wife greatly. It still does. In looking back from my current perspective, None of this seems coincidental or normal. The professionals were of no help, but Sarah, being a special education teacher, worked tirelessly on gradual desensitization that outwardly unlocked whatever it was that kept her from talking. By second grade, Jesse was back on track. If it was trauma... That kept her quiet for three years, it remained unknown to Sarah and I. Jessie didn't remember anything that might have triggered her mutism, and still doesn't. Our son David was a shining star, full of piss and vinegar, liked by all, a great student, a great athlete, and had movie star good looks. He was a combination of all things that our culture did. Deemed necessary for success. His drug problem began in high school and blossomed at Providence College when he became addicted to opioids. It could have been any college. He never finished college but finally got clean in 2012. He never finished college but finally got clean in 2012. In 2014, he returned to Norwich and with a friend, who was also a recovered addict, started CrossFit payback. We thought we had our beautiful boy back for good, but in 2017, he relapsed and OD'd in April 2017. Two years before his older brother. What influences I had in all of this, I can only speculate. I thought I was a good father. The writing of this book is suggesting far different possibly. My drinking was only during social situations, but always to excess. I didn't drink at home, but often showed up at home in an inebriated state that none of my children could have missed. Blindness takes many forms. Here's the weird thing. To the point of my metamorphosis, I believe my life was normal and basically good. After all, I had many examples of lives that were far worse. Comparisons hold own dangers. Trust me. Okay. And that's the end of chapter four. Thanks for listening.